Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The coronavirus epidemic, is it now a pandemic, has affected lives around the world and in Utah. We're going to talk about it today on Access Utah. More than 2,500 deaths have been reported in China. Iran is the second in number of deaths worldwide. Two people have died so far in Washington state. Uh, quoting from the Desert News now, as the cases have ticked up, some Americans stocked up on basic supplies, particularly in areas with diagnosed cases, and began to take note of the impact on daily lives. Stores such as Costco sold out of toilet paper, bottled water, and hand sanitizer outside Portland, Oregon, where a case was announced on Friday. Sports games and practices were canceled into the coming school week. Some churches said they would uh, not offer communion because of fears of viral spread. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has urged members not to travel to Utah for the April General Conference of the Church. Uh, as we talk about this, our guests uh, will include Rob Campbell, President and CEO of Campbell Scientific uh, in uh, Logan. He joins us in studio. Uh, welcome. Hi, Tom. Good to be here. Uh, we'll talk about effects on uh, on your international company and uh, effects on travel with, with your company. Uh, Bachman Bakhtiari, an expert on Iran from the Baskerville Institute in Salt Lake City, joins us on the telephone uh, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. And uh, as I said, we'll explore effects in Iran, uh, number two in deaths uh, uh, worldwide from this. Um, later on uh, uh, in the program, Dr. Andy Pavia, an infectious disease specialist in Salt Lake City, will join us. We're also joined right now on the line by uh, Rachel Hunt. Uh, understand uh, you were working in China and uh, now unable to return. Yes. And so we'll... we'll... I live... Yes, yeah, whenever go, you're ready. Uh, yeah, uh, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, so I was teaching at a university there south of Shanghai by about four hours in a city of 11 million people called Wenzhou. It's about 400 miles from Wuhan where the epidemic started, but the region or the area was second hardest hit in mainland China. I have a number of cases as well as other things. Um my husband and I are both professors at the university, the U.S. State School from New Jersey called Kane University, and the campus there is called WKU, Winjo Kane. Um, and we had a few weeks off for Chinese New Year, so we came back to the U.S. to see our families and for our families to see our kids and meet our new baby. And then um, we haven't been able to go back, essentially. And we have friends there that have been on lockdown since February 2nd. Both friends, Chinese friends, as well as foreigner friends that are professors with their families live there. And many of the families did end up getting out to their home country, but a lot of other people, a lot of us have been stuck. We have professors from all over the world. Some were stuck in just places they'd gone for vacation to Thailand or Indonesia and couldn't make it back to China, um, like not just in their home countries. And so they've had us teaching online. My classes are at like 10 around 10 at night, but my husband has classes that start at midnight because they're still having us teach Beijing time. Mm. Yeah, so it's affected our lives a lot, and we still have no idea when we can go back. No, no idea still, yeah. This is still in flux. Uh, so you say the, the, the people at the university there are, are, are still in lockdown. February 2nd, that's, that's quite a while. Um, yeah, the school was supposed to start February 10th, and then they changed to February 24th, and then the Wenzhou city government said no one could start before March 1st. So they did have us start teaching online February 24th, but yesterday was the day that was supposed to be able to reopen, and it still hasn't, and they still don't have word about when they can. So the students also are from, a lot of them are from the same province that um, Wenzhou is in, but not all of them 
are in so they are in different situations. Like some are in cities where it's stricter than others. But what we were told from our friends that were there that were on lockdown for two weeks is that one person per family every other day could leave their apartment to go get food, and then. When they came back, they had to be temperature checked before they could get back into their own apartment, and that at least twice a day, every member of the family has to do these health checks and send them in by WeChat, which is kind of like a social media or a text message thing, and the government is keeping track. And even now, we get messages for our kids, teachers every day with these health checks as well from the schools because everything is shut down. And then they're also, like, getting food there, I think, has gotten harder and harder, where... Like, we'd get messages from friends that were still there telling each other where they were getting food at, like, which villages still were open and which still had produce and which still had meat. And then every single day, things getting shut down and saying, this one's not open anymore, this place is closed, but this thing in the back is open, and then this thing is in the back is open, but you have to bring your passport and write down their number, your number when you shop, whether you're Chinese or a foreigner. And now they're not selling meat, they're not selling this. And so every day we were getting messages like this. Hmm. Yeah, it sounds like uh, uh, you know government taking it very seriously. There are some extraordinary measures. I want to turn to Rob Campbell uh, here in studio. Um, so Campbell T- Scientific, um, you 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 sell around the world, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, just for people who don't know, people who listen to, to Utah Public Radio will have heard your messages. Mm-hmm. Um, scientific instrumentation, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we uh, sell scientific measurement uh, instrumentation around the world. We've got nine offices around the world, including one in uh, Beijing, China. Yeah. Uh, tell me first of all about that office. What's uh, what are people doing there in that office? Uh, similar to the story that we just heard, they've been uh, essentially on lockdown since um, uh, since the Chinese New Year. Um, they've not returned to the office, uh, but. Uh, uh, we uh, have uh, had uh, people working remotely, um, doing work from home, and uh, we we have uh, withheld shipments uh, of our products uh, to our China office uh, since there's nobody there to receive mm. any of the goods. Right. So affecting business, I mean, that's yeah, probably a little bit down the list of concerns, but if you're in business, that's, that is yep. a concern, right? It is, yeah. Uh, I, I'm sure the top uh, concern is the, the welfare of your people. Um, so they're they're essentially in lockdown. They they're not yeah leaving their house. Right, right, yeah. And and uh, I corresponded uh, with our general manager over there, and uh, she uh, um, had indicated um, that all of our people are well, their families are well. Um, so in that regard, you know, we're we're grateful for that. Hmm. Um, any other hotspots around the world where you're concerned about your people? Uh, the only other one that's that's come up, we do have an office in Bangkok, Thailand, and uh, we had a leadership conference uh, that's scheduled for April, uh, which will likely be uh, pushed back. Uh, but we did have uh, our managing director uh, from that office, uh, due to some of the t- other uh, travel restrictions that were in place, uh, he said, hey, you know, what's uh, what's going on with the leadership conference? And we said, we're monitoring the situation, but he didn't feel comfortable uh, making the trip over. And then... Um, we had a partnership conference, uh, partnership conference that was scheduled for late March, um, where we actually host that here in Logan, and uh, we have attendees from all over the world. We had uh, originally had scheduled uh, about thirty participants from China, uh, as well as others from South Korea, uh, some from Thailand, and uh, and uh, because of the of the travel disruptions, travel restrictions. Um, 
we've decided to uh, delay that uh, partner conference until October this year. Mm -hmm. Delayed about six months. Yeah. I guess see how things settle out. Yeah. 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 Um, So you're bringing in people, I think, on a fairly regular basis. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that's interrupted. Yeah, we do, and and uh, we have some uh, training classes. Typically, we'll hold training classes uh, once a month. We're looking at uh, we're looking at that where the attendees are from, those kinds of things. So, so I think it's a combination of of both uh, uh, people traveling here as well as uh, us sending uh, employees around the world and uh, trying to exercise caution there too. Hmm. Now, if we look at you know Campbell Scientific, uh, uh, a great Cash Valley company, uh, look at the effects on you guys. Uh, and then you write that large, you can maybe understand uh, why the stock market is yeah, is, yeah. Is, is down. Yeah, yeah. You can certainly see, you know, some of the impacts, uh, you know, on uh, on trading, potentially on sales. Particularly, you know, you look at the at the travel and and airline type of uh, industries, and it, it uh, makes a lot of sense. But when you start to see companies, uh, especially large companies like Amazon, I think it was Thursday or Friday announced. Uh, that they're uh, uh, deferring all non-essential travel, um, and and we've got uh, upcoming even this month two or three trade shows, one in Madrid uh, scheduled for next week. That uh, that uh, likely uh, we're probably not going to attend that, uh, just given the the abundance of caution uh, that's out there. So so yeah, I mean when you start start uh, deferring some of those uh, uh, interactions and and uh, um, uh, relationships, those kinds of things, it's it's bound to have a uh, an impact on uh, on business. Mm. And, uh, you know, uh, pleasure travel as well. I was talking to a friend yesterday who had a chance to go to France for for a nice time. She's trying to, she's debating. She hasn't decided against it. She's debating, hmm. oh, maybe I don't want to go now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, travel's the big thing. And I guess as uh, CEO of the company, you have to decide... How much to restrict travel? Yeah. How much to travel you do yourself or whether just cut off all travel? Yeah, and and, and that's uh, something that we're looking at right now, uh, considering uh, really cutting back on the travel. Certainly air travel is the, is the biggest concern uh, for us. Um, and uh, so we're evaluating that uh, and uh, uh, trying to make the right decision of uh, don't overreact, but don't underreact. You know, mm-hmm. we want to be uh, responsible and in uh, how we approach this for our employees and really for uh, for the community uh, in general. We'll bring on the doctor uh, here uh, shortly, um, but um, uh, that's a that's a tough we're, uh, society as a whole. We're trying to do that right, overreact, underreact. Yeah, get it just right. It's pretty hard to do. It is. It is. Uh, it's it's difficult because even as we were talking uh, this morning um, about uh, potential travel restrictions. You know, it's kind of like, okay, do you send a, a uh, somebody out to the middle of Wyoming to uh, install a weather station, uh, kind of a thing? And that, you know, that's obviously got a lot less risk than somebody traveling halfway around the world, going through a number of uh, major airports, those kinds of things. And so you kind of got to evaluate uh, uh, that and coming out uh, with something that makes sense. I think the other thing that we're really looking at too is uh, is just being able to to uh, be ready and. In case if if uh, we did get into a situation like our China office and we had to have um, folks uh, work from home, you know, what's the uh, what's the contingency plan there? You know, can we facilitate remote work? Those kinds of things. 
Now, how different? I, I now you weigh risk every day. I'm sure, right? Yeah, as the head of a company. Yep. How different is this? Is is it the unknown? Is it the? It's it is a lot of it's the the unknown, and and because this uh, situation is so dynamic and so changing. When uh, things started to come up in China, you know, here in sort of mid to end of January, and we started to hear more, more and more about it, you know, it was, it, it, at least in my mind, it was more of a, uh, an international kind of a, kind of an issue. And as it has changed, even uh, well, even since we talked uh, this last week about uh, about uh, me coming on the program, I thought. Well, I don't have a lot to report, and even in the last couple of days, things have escalated to the point where it's like, yeah, I think we need to be a little bit more cautious. So it is the unknown. It's the dynamic, changing nature of the situation and just wishing that we, that we had a little bit more information, but also being careful not to overreact in, in a situation like that, you know, and and uh, as we were talking during the break about the impact of the flu and, 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 and uh, all the things associated with that, um, I think it's important to keep this in perspective, uh, but you do want to be responsible uh, as well. Yeah. Let me turn to uh, Bachman Bakhtiari from the Baskerville Institute. Um, so as we were talking uh, last week, I think it was, um, you, you were highlighting the fact that Iran is second in the number of deaths uh, from coronavirus. Uh, coronavirus is really hitting Iran hard, I understand. Yes, uh the Iranian government really did not acknowledge the existence of the virus until about 10 days ago, and their secrecy, lack of transparency has led to a major pandemic inside Iran. Uh, right now, the government has announced 1,500 cases and 62 deaths, but the predictions are they will reach 18,000 cases of affected people. So Iran being at the crossroads, of countries, Europe, Russia, Asia, this could be, have a serious implications for the region. Uh, so you're saying that the um, this is maybe a, a how-to and how-not-to-do-this from the government perspective, right? They're, they've not been very transparent, you're saying? Well, the Iranian government, as you know, is under sanctions, international isolation, and they made a serious mistake 10 days ago by holding a parliamentary elections in Iran, Millions of people came on the streets when you had the coronavirus spread. And in Iran, uh, you have a voting system that people vote with their fingers. So you can imagine what has happened there with touching the voting uh, for the parliament and spreading it. So today, uh, people are looking at Iran as the second most affected country after China right now. Hmm. What and it, it uh, I guess the, the looking to the the at least the short term future it's it's not looking looking so good. It's I guess the the virus is spreading quickly. Yes, the virus is spreading, but um, uh, as I mentioned, Iran has uh, uh, land and sea boundaries with sixteen countries in the region. So traces to Iran have been uh, picked up in Kuwait, in southern Persian Gulf in Turkey, in Iraq, Afghanistan, and also uh, Dubai, Saudi Arabia, are a major business hub. Uh, there are about 50,000 American troops in the region, not to mention about another 100,000 Americans who have, are there for business uh, or any other uh, purposes in Dubai, Saudi Arabia. So this could have a serious impact. <laughs> so I uh, understand, uh, I guess most, maybe all surrounding countries have closed their borders? 
they have closed the borders, but uh, the borders are so fluid, particularly in Afghanistan and Iraq, that, uh, uh, as I mentioned to someone on the interview, that viruses don't ask for visas. Mm-hmm. So yeah. the uh, religious pilgrims who go from Iraq to Iran or uh, from Afghanistan, they could carry the virus back and forth. And religious, and, and that's I think that's still going on, right? Religious pilgrims are, are making pilgrimages? Well, the government has stopped the pilgrims now. Saudi Arabia has canceled their annual hajj. That will bring millions to Saudi Arabia. But still, uh, some of the uh, public events are going on. But universities have been shut down in Iran. Uh, schools have been canceled. And government has mobilized 300,000 public health workers to go from house to house and do testing of the population. Mm. Um, you mentioned the sanctions, of course, uh, U.S. sanctions especially. Um, what effect are the sanctions having on, in, in response to the virus? Well, the sanctions have really kind of uh, uh, destroyed the infrastructure of the public health in Iran. The government has not had any kind of investment in it. And uh, being in conflict and tension all the time is a kind of a recipe for uh, pandemics. So uh, just recently, Secretary of State Pompeo announced that they will allow humanitarian assistance through the Swiss Channel by sending kids to Iran. But it came out very late. Banks are still hesitant to handle any kind of trade with Iran. Hmm. Um, are you in, I, I assume you're in contact with, with at least some people back in Iran? Yes, we are in contact with Iran, and uh, in Iran, the social media is very active on this issue. Um, Some people refer to it as infodemic, because people are constantly posting situations and kind of uh, uh, putting numbers up. Uh, So it is a serious situation. People are not leaving their homes. Uh, They're not participating in any kind of public event. So uh, Iran being a country of 80 million is one of the largest in the Middle East. So he has kind of shut down all the trade and economy in that part of the world. Mm. Well, uh, we're due for a break. Let's take a break. When we come back, uh, we will uh, continue with uh, uh, Bakhman Bakhtiari from the uh, Basketball Institute. We have with us in studio Rob uh, Campbell, president and CEO of Campbell Scientific in Logan, and uh, on the line from Salt Lake City, Rachel Hunt, uh, who until fairly recently was uh, teaching in China at the university there and is unable right now to uh, return. And uh, when we come back, we'll uh, bring in Dr. Andy Pavia, who's an infectious disease specialist in Salt Lake City. You get a medical uh, view of this. More follows this break. What concerns you the most about aging? More people worry about dementia than heart disease, cancer, or other conditions. We will experience memory changes, the forgotten appointment or name or just the right word. That is normal aging. But difficulty completing familiar tasks, confusion with place, and memory loss that disrupts daily life are not. Bring up memory concerns at your parents' next healthcare appointment. Share if you see disorientation, forgetting recently learned information, or a sudden inability to complete familiar tasks. While it's tempting to deny memory impairment, early diagnosis of conditions such as Alzheimer's allows treatment to begin right away. Share with their doctor to bring more to their lives in ways you never knew. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan, advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. 
Are you looking for a way to make your nonprofit organization more visible to our statewide community? Well, we'd love to support your events on our UPR community calendar. Head to upr.org, click on the community calendar tab, and there you can find the submission link. We highlight events including concerts, live theater, workshops, art shows, lectures, dances, and more. Again, you can just go to the community calendar tab on upr.org to submit your event. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking about the coronavirus epidemic, uh, which is affecting people worldwide, and of course here in Utah as well, uh, if at least um, indirectly. Um, and we're uh, talking with Rob Campbell, who's in studio. He's president and CEO of Campbell Scientific in Logan. It's having effects on his company, his people. Bachman Bakhtiari is an expert on Iran from the Baskerville Institute in Salt Lake City. And Rachel Hunt, uh, who was working in China, uh, teaching in the university there, is now uh, still teaching, but uh, having to do it remotely, unable to return at this point. Uh, we bring in now Dr. Andy Pavia, infectious disease specialist in Salt Lake City. Dr. Pavia, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. D- did I pronounce your name correctly? Well, it's Pavia. Pavia, okay. It, All yeah. right. Uh, it's, it's, it's actually like a town in the region of Italy that is currently experiencing a lot of coronavirus. Okay, Pavia. All right, very good. Um, so I, I want to um, you know, get kind of a medical uh, uh, view of this. Uh, my vague understanding is uh, coronavirus, maybe a lot of people uh, have experienced it, but uh, thought they had the uh, cold or flu. Well, that's partially right. So um, we have not been looking in great detail in the United States for milder disease because we've not had the capacity for testing. And what's going on in Seattle, Oregon, and California shows us that the virus has been here for a while, probably six weeks in the case of Seattle. So that means that there's been infection that we haven't been detecting. One of the reasons we're not detecting it, um, aside from lack of testing, is that for at least 80% of people who acquire this coronavirus, the illness will seem like a mild to moderate typical infectious, respiratory infectious disease that they experience during the winter. And so if we don't have good ways of testing those people, we can't measure the true scope of the outbreak. What you see in Seattle is that once it starts hitting elderly and vulnerable people and you have deaths, now you pick up the signal that it's there. Uh, which is, of course, unfortunate, right? It takes deaths to, to send out that signal. Uh, tell me about the testing. What, what, what testing is needed? Are, are effective tests available? There have been uh, pretty good tests from the outset of the outbreak that look for the nucleic acid material, the genomic material of the virus. They're called PCR. We use those in the hundreds every day for testing for influenza and other viruses here at Primary Children's, for example. The problem has been uh, in getting those tests available. And we, we can go into what happened at CDC in more detail, but suffice it to say that until probably this weekend, the flow of testing in the United States was very, very slow, and that was a big problem. Uh, as maybe we could talk about CDC, I guess, the, the, the response to the virus. Um, so uh, if, in full disclosure, I'm, uh, I trained at CDC. I'm closely involved and an advisor to CDC on pandemic preparedness and other things. I think that 
by and large, CDC is doing a terrific job. And if you look at the media today, um, there's always, you know, some um, swing in the general tenor. And the tenor right now is to focus on the things that haven't gone as well. Clearly, the testing has not gone well. And that's a big problem. We should acknowledge it. But in terms of tracking cases, in terms of communicating with the public, in terms of preparing within the limits of the budget that have been given, and the coordination that's been available in the federal government, I would have to say they've done an extremely good job, with the exception of the testing, which has been really problematic. Um, how, how do we protect ourselves? I think it's really important that we realize that uh, this is not a catastrophe. This isn't the apocalypse. It's a respiratory illness. Uh, and... For most people, it will be really modest, and for those who are sick, we have good medical care systems. But like flu and like colds, we can do a lot to protect ourselves. Everyone's heard this until they're sick of it, but it really is important. You can wash your hands frequently, use hand sanitizer after uh, touching your nose or close contact with other people. You You must cover your cough. You should stay home when you're ill. If this gets, if and when this gets fairly widespread, avoiding places where you're going to have a lot of unprotected, very close contact indoors with people will protect you and your family. There are uh, very good instructions from CDC and others as to how to safely take care of a sick person in your family to reduce the chance of spreading it through the family. We're pretty good at responding to these things, and particularly here in Utah, we're you know resilient. Um, Westerners who pull together, we're going to do fine, uh, but it is going to be very difficult. What, how would you compare the risk of the, the coronavirus to, to the uh, you know, influenza type A or whatever you know, we have going around uh, this year uh, in, terms of, in terms of risk? We don't have all the answers yet. You have to preface everything we say with that. Um, it does look as if... The virus is transmitted about as easily as flu, although the patterns may be slightly different. It looks as if the proportion of people who end up with very severe disease is higher than this year's flu and higher than average flu years. Um, But it is not extraordinarily much higher. It's similar to what we've seen in other flu pandemics, like in 1957, if anyone is old enough to remember that, or 1968. There's a lot of misinformation out there. Uh, even people who know better are still saying that 2.3 or 2.5 percent of the vi- of people get infected with the virus die. That's totally inaccurate. That's based on very crude assumptions and what happened in Hubei when the hospitals were overwhelmed and the healthcare system was collapsing. We don't know what the exact case fatality rate is, but it's going to end up something quite a bit lower than that, higher than flu lower than SARS, probably under 1%. Um, but again, we really don't have those answers yet. Now, public health officials, um, they've, they've got quite the job. It's, it's not only managing the you know, spread of, of the uh, virus, but uh, it's managing public opinion, public fear, right? Yeah. The public health folks are the true heroes of this. They don't get any credit when things don't happen. It's a little like nobody uh, thanks the fire department when your house doesn't burn down. Um, And they're underfunded and they're understaffed and they have 
a whole variety of tasks to take on. Um, but you know, one of the most challenging things for us to do during any emergency is to communicate well, to get things across clearly to people so they know what to do for themselves, to calm down panic, to ramp up appropriate worry so people are doing the right things. And um, that's one of the things that we are not as good at as we are at making drugs and vaccines and tracking cases. Is, is there is work underway to develop a vaccine for this virus? There is a great deal of work going on now at a rapid pace. But I do want to say that we've got missed opportunities. It was very clear to people in my line of work in emerging infections that we would see another coronavirus emerge. And experts throughout um, the public health world had been pushing for research in how to make coronavirus vaccines very quickly. Unfortunately, the funding was not there to really invest ahead of time in the platform that would have saved us months. That said, I think we'll have a vaccine. It's not an easy process. I'm confident we'll have a vaccine. It's not an easy process, and making predictions about exactly when it's going to be here are difficult. You know, 9 to 15 months is probably the right range, um, and every effort is being made to speed that up. Um, I want to turn back to Rachel Hunt. Um, so, so you were talking about your, you know, your, your friends, your students still still in China, and uh, you know some pretty strict measures Chinese officials are, are taking. I wonder if you could repeat some of those measures. I want to get to perspective from Dr. Pavia. Yes. Um, so from what I, it's hard, it's a little tricky because I haven't been there. Right. I just um, get WeChat messages, both from students and like colleagues as well as my children were both in kindergarten there. Um, that was tied to the university, but they were the only Westerners in their classes. So all of their classmates were Chinese, and all but one of their teachers were Chinese. And so getting messages from all of these people about what it's been like for them to be inside. And so we've heard that the lockdown started around February 2nd, and at first they were hoping it would just be for two weeks, but we think it has continued. Um, and... And I think it got stricter as time went on, but what we had been told is that every two days, one person per family could leave their apartment to go get food, and then on their return, they had to have their temperature checked before they were able to go back to their apartment, and then there are health checks that they needed to do themselves inside their apartment and report back every day, like twice during the day. I think these were temperature checks as well. I'm not sure the details of what else they were asking for. Um, but there, like, a lot of information that I think was being tracked, like, that people were responsible, but there was also people to help and check as well. Um, and, I, and I think a lot of borders from the city, like, were slowly closed. But at first, like, a lot of exits were still open and entrances were still open. Then those slowly closed as well. And things like public transportation was shutting down, and it was even hard to get taxis. And, like, what things were open continued to close as well. Um, so it's so these are the things that I've been told from the outside. Hmm. Uh, so, Dr. Pavia, this, of course, things got pretty bad in certain areas of, of China, and so extraordinary measures perhaps needed. Um, well, you know, it's a very different society than ours, as uh, you just heard, and there's a lot of political uh, as well as public health decisions that are being made. So I think we need to be very careful in thinking about what was done in China and how that might play out in the West and what of the many, many things that were done uh, actually worked. What we do know is that 
early on when something is restricted to one place that uh, limiting travel can help, but it very quickly becomes useless once there are dozens of countries or provinces from which the virus could come in. So I don't think we're going to see, at least rationally, we shouldn't see large restrictions on travel in the future. But social distancing, avoiding uh, people spending lots of time in close quarters uh, and having a lot of unprotected contact with each other is the basis for a lot of our strategy for where we're going to go forward. We are not going to employ the kinds of facial recognition software and human tracking that China has done or lock people in their apartments. But I think we can anticipate a lot of other measures from canceling of international meetings and um, public events. Uh, school closures are certainly being considered, a big emphasis on working from home uh, and things like that that we will use that are similar but different to what was done in China. I've neglected to uh, mention the uh, the email. We've been so busy talking about coronavirus. Uh, so uh, email is upraxcess at gmail.com. You can uh, you can reach us with your question or comment. Love that, uh, or, or wish that you would. Uh, upraxcess at gmail.com. Upraxcess at gmail.com. Uh, you could call as well, 800-826-1495. Chris did, and he left this question. Chris in St. George. Uh, so I'll direct this to Dr. Pavia. Uh, he wanted to know if the virus can be transmitted on surfaces like doorknobs, countertops, and whether it can be transmitted through fast food. So uh, those are all questions that are on everyone's mind, so they're good questions. Um, we know that other coronaviruses survive for variable amounts of time on things like doorknobs and hard countertops if somebody coughs or sneezes or wipes their snot on it, essentially. Um, it doesn't last forever, and it's pretty easy to disinfect those surfaces, so those are some of the things we should be doing, or to disinfect your hands after you've touched them. There's no reason to think, from what we know, that food is a particularly good vehicle for this virus. It's a respiratory virus. Um, but, of course, you know, the boxes or the wrappers handled by unprotected hands and coughed on uh, certainly could be, but I wouldn't worry about food so much as the things that other people's dirty hands contact and then you contact. But most importantly, you don't get it because you touched the object, because it doesn't come in through the skin of your hands. It's because you then touch your face. And one of the things people should be thinking about is how often we touch our face and trying to just become conscious of that and reducing it. Yeah, every time I get sick, I I become very hyper-conscious of that, but, but by then it's too late, right? <laughs> I'm already <laughs> well, sick. Well, actually, it's, it's very helpful for your family and your colleagues. Oh, okay. When All you right. touch your face, you're collecting virus from your nose and mouth, and now you can distribute it from your hands. Yeah. Rob Campbell. But, of course, for prevention, you have to do it the other way around. Uh, right, exactly. Rob Campbell, uh, before we went on the air, you telling me a story. Was this one of your employees, or was it you? A uh, guy in a plane who was went to DEFCON 5 to protect himself. Oh, yeah. yeah, so it was a uh, – uh, uh, we had an employee that was uh, returning from Seattle um, on – I believe it was on Friday. And uh, the gentleman behind him in the airplane had uh, – uh, not just gone to the extent of uh, putting a mask on, but also, you know, the the full on full on safety goggles on. Didn't move the whole flight, and uh, and uh, he just said uh, this employee just uh, said that it was a little little strange uh, coming back from Seattle. You know? Yeah, so, I suppose the fellow, if he didn't get the virus, might say, "Hey, I don't care," right? But, 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 <laughs> probably, yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to turn to Doctor Pavia. Is is that 
I mean, is, is you know, a, an abundance of caution, is, would that be effective? So, a couple things. First of all, that's pretty extreme. And secondly, airplanes aren't that much uh, more dangerous, or probably not any more dangerous than other places that were sitting very close to people. So uh, I think this guy was overreacting, and, and lots of people are terribly scared of germs. Um, you know, I, I would take a bottle of hand sanitizer with me on an airplane right now, and I would uh, use it frequently after I got up to use the restroom or, uh, you know, walk down touching the back of seats. But masks are not going to protect otherwise healthy people walking around in public. Uh, and uh, goggles are important if you're a healthcare worker leaning over examining the throat of somebody who's coughing, but probably not needed for sitting in row 39C. I think one reason we worry about, I worry about airplanes is the, understand it's recirculated air, right? And you're in close proximity with a bunch of people. The second is really what you worry about is you're sitting, you know, if we talk about Ideally, being six feet away from somebody who's infected and three feet being uh, the reasonable safe margin, you have several people inside of that bubble from you. The air is actually filtered on airplanes, so it's really only a small number of people close to you whose air you breathe. And in the case of coronavirus, we really think that the primary risk is from droplets. So um, the person next to you coughing on you or coughing on your tray table and then you're touching it is far more risk than the air you breathe walking down the aisle. Mm. Likewise, you know, the doors to the restroom and the overhead luggage bins and stuff will be of touch been touched by hundreds of hands and you probably want to clean your hands after you've handled those. I want to turn back to Bakman Bakhtiari from the Baskerville Institute to talk about Iran. So you, you said you, you are in contact, I think regular contact with people back in Iran. Uh, I wonder about the the emotional state, it's, it's, it's got to be, I wonder if you're um, hearing uh, people expressing their fears. Well, the emotional stage is very high, as uh, Dr. Pavia mentioned. A uh, lot of the people have to kind of uh, take care of themselves because the government is simply not capable of providing those public health infrastructure protocols. So people are continuously uh, posting materials, reading kind of uh, talking about uh, cures and uh, so forth. And sometimes uh, wrong information and misleading information could also increase the death numbers. So uh, the situation in Yuan really requires a global approach. And I think with the coronavirus right now having reached 65 countries and over 90,000 people impacted, we really need a global uh, approach right now. And unfortunately, United States uh, cut the budget of CDC global operations and all that. So uh, in many ways, I think, unless we adopt that global approach and address these issues on a more serious public health uh, protocol, uh, we're not going to be immune of these viruses. And I think uh, viruses have spread in community. Uh, Pretty soon, people are not going to be able to tell where it came from. And in Iran, being at the crossroads, uh, some scientists have predicted anywhere between 18,000 to 50,000 people affected. So there has to be some serious uh, prevention, global prevention uh, approach here. What uh, what would Can it I take? Uh, yes, go, go ahead, doctor. I, I wanted to say something, you know, from a public health perspective. I think the, the situation in Iran really reminds us that we as the United States, with our 
capabilities, our public health infrastructure. We should be helping all of our neighbor countries, and that includes Iran. And even if we don't do it out of any sort of altruism, um, if we global health is global health, and if one country is buckling under or is very sick, it increases the risk to everyone. So for purely selfish reasons, as well as for the obvious humanitarian reasons, um, we really need to think about what we can do for countries that have a lot less resources than we do, and not just think about ourselves. You know, we are all very, very interconnected, aren't we? Uh, so Bakhman Bakhtiari, uh, are, are there basic needs that are going unmet that maybe the international community, you know, medical, uh, global health community, but uh, basic needs as well? Yeah. So they, they're in desperate need of test kits. Uh, right now, uh, people, whoever feels has a fever or the slightest of cold, they show up at emergency rooms, they clutter their clinics, and later they have to realize that, oh, this is not that serious. So uh, those test kits are really in desperate need in Iran. The hospitals, clinics, they all need uh, special uh, outfits, materials to kind of uh, gloves, masks to treat the patients. So in many ways, I think uh, there's, there's truly a global need. Uh, officials from WHO, World Health Organization, are arriving in Iran today. Uh, it's a little bit late, but they are taking it very seriously. They're taking it, sending a team there right now. So as Dr. Breva mentioned, we are truly a global uh, society today. I mean, China's economy is so integrated with global markets. And uh, in Iran, you had over 100 Chinese companies investing in Iran. And there were about 20,000 Chinese advisors in Iran. So it is not a surprise that Iran has become a second focal point. But again, being under sanction isolation, it will only accelerate. Before we go to break, I want to turn back to Rachel Hunt, uh, who, of course, was uh, teaching at university in China and unable to return right now. Uh, understand you and your husband are both uh, teaching uh, classes uh, remotely at this point. I wonder, uh, same question to you, uh, the, the people that you're in contact with there in China, what's the, what's the emotional state? People scared? Are they kind of rolling with this? What's, what's the emotional state? I think it depends. Um... One of my colleagues that I was talking to noted that she would check her students, something called WeChat moments, sort of like on social media, the stories that they'd share, the things that they'd post. And post after post from her students, they were just saying they were bored. They're saying, I want to go to school. Um, I think that that's been a widespread thing. That other friends, like my daughter is six, and moms of her friends have told me that they have so much time inside and that they just try to a lot of stories and play a lot of games with their family, so they're trying to make the best of it, but it's hard. And for me, I felt so much sorrow for the Chinese people that happened during their Chinese New Year, their spring festival. That's such a special time for them, where like literally what they do for it is gather and eat together. And so even at the very beginning of what was supposed to be this very special time of gathering with family and friends, they were told not to. They were told not to eat together, like kind of like the limited thing unless you have to, of getting together and being in spaces. And so this has been months and months and even before the lockdown of them trying to be careful, trying not to spread this. And so I think that, of course, there's boredom. Some of my students have told me that they've tried to learn new skills, like they're trying to learn how to cook or they're trying to teach themselves instruments or they're 
Like, some of them are using time reading, some are watching a lot of movies. So I think that they're trying to pass the time. Um, but I think it's hard for all of them. And, it, and one of the things that you did talk to someone on the radio about is just this, how it's unknown. I think the CEO, it's hard to make right decisions, right, and to have that perfect balance just because we don't know and because it's always changing. But I think even that unknown of, like, yesterday I asked my students if they know when they're returning to campus because it was supposed to be yesterday. And I wondered maybe they've been told more than we have of when we can come back. And they literally just said, we have no idea. So for me as not knowing when I can go back and not having packed enough for how many months I've been in the U.S. Like, just that not knowing was so hard, too, because we didn't know what we should do with our kids' school here. We ended up putting my daughter in kindergarten in Utah because our two and a half weeks turned into two months, and we had no idea if it will be two more weeks or two more months before we can go back. So I think that that unknown for everyone feels super challenging, like, plus the boredom. Uh, yeah, that was a conversation with Rob Campbell, and uh, you know we we learn about that in the business world. You know, businesses need certainty, right? Yep. Uh, personally, we I guess it, it's times like this where we where we learn again that uh, as people we need <laughs> we certainly need certainty. Yeah, and I and, and I yeah, it feels very unsettling yeah. not to have it. Yeah, yeah. Rob Campbell. Yeah, I, you know, with regard to certainty, I think that that uh, as Rachel has mentioned that. The key thing there is uh, communication. That's one of the things that that we're in the process of, uh, you know, getting set up. I I had mentioned to our uh, HR director this morning. Uh, you know, we need to set up. Uh, you know, whether it's by email or we're investigating a couple of other ways that we can do that uh, with our employees of just being able to offer regular updates. And and it's not it's not, you know, the the worst is when there's nothing communicated because then. That leads to more uncertainty. If you can at least uh, communicate uh, something, what uh, what's going on, what our stance is, that kind of thing. That's uh, that's important. Mm. And and again, you're you're evaluating as CEO. You're evaluating the risks, and and uh, I guess the big thing for you is travel. Yeah, yeah. Right now, yeah. right now it is 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 just on the travel side, and really travel, and then just paying attention to the uh, to the uh, CDC and other government uh, guidelines, and just. You know, doing what we can to to do our part to be responsible in in um, uh, playing our part in in uh, prevention and minimizing any spread. Uh, uh, you know, if uh, if and when that uh, the the virus is here. So we just have about uh, five or six minutes left in the program. Uh, if you just joined us, we're talking with Rob Campbell, President and CEO of Campbell Scientific and Logan, Bachman Bakhtiari, who's an expert on Iran from the Baskerville Institute in Salt Lake City. Uh, Dr. Andy Pavia, an infectious disease specialist in Salt Lake City, and Rachel Hunt, uh, who uh, teaches uh, at a university in China, now remotely from uh, Salt Lake City. Um, You're welcome to join us uh, here with your question. Quick question in at uh, upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. I want to turn back to uh, Dr. Pavia. You mentioned uh, SARS, uh, and, you know, it's kind of a distant memory now, but I remember, you know, that was a kind of a scary thing. Do you think this will play out in that way? This is proving to be quite different from SARS, even though the viruses are close relatives. SARS um, only made, uh, only was detectable when people were quite ill, um, and so you didn't have asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic people walking around with it. It was relatively difficult to spread until you started to get quite sick and have procedures done to it. Um, so I think the approach we took to SARS and the approach that is going to work eventually for this coronavirus, SARS-2, are going to be quite different. 
SARS was also quite a bit deadlier. Final mortality was around 8%, um, and this is going to be some very small fraction of that, maybe 10, a tenth of that. Mm. Uh, the, the, you know, the way these things move, uh, so cases reported in Washington, Oregon, and, and California, uh, will we undoubtedly have cases? Or do we have cases in Utah? Well, we don't know because we haven't looked, but I, I, I'm going to predict that we will and we'll find them soon because we're ramping up our testing. So people should expect that you're going to hear news about you know, many, many more cases in the United States this week. And it's not because the virus is exploding. It's because we're finally going to be able to look in a lot more places. So don't freak out when later this week we learn that it's in a dozen states and that there are probably cases right here in Utah that we've missed. Hmm. There's no real surprise there. Uh, now, if, if I were to get sick, you know, symptoms of cold or flu or whatever, uh, should I, uh, is there opportunity for me to get tested, to see if it's coronavirus? Should I do that? So, as of right now, what you don't want to do, if you have mild symptoms, is rush into an Instacare or an emergency department. First of all, we're not testing people with mild disease yet. We don't have the capacity. Secondly, whatever you have, you're more likely to spread in that setting. And thirdly, um, you may pick something else up in those settings. So if you have mild illness that you would normally take care of at home, you should continue to do so. And, and that's the advice we're probably going to be giving uh, throughout this uh, epidemic is to, to try and care for yourself at home when it's appropriate, to call ahead and figure out the best place to be seen and to get checked if you are more severely ill. Uh, and, and the other thing that we're going to have to do is just to try and prevent our instacares, our doctor's offices, our emergency rooms from being clogged up by people who have colds and cough, which all of us do this time of year, um, but who are not really ill because we need that capacity to take care of those who need the more advanced medical care. Just have about a minute left. Uh, I'll turn back to Bakran Bakhtiari. Um, so people have been hearing about problems in Iran. Is there, is there a way, you know, we can get help to Iran? Is there a good, good conduit for that? People want to help. Yes, uh, Relief International has opened a channel to Iran, and they are asking for all the contributions to go to Relief International. Uh, U.S. government and Europeans recently established a humanitarian channel with the Swiss government. So that uh, humanitarian channel through Swiss is also available. And it also uh, must be, again, as many of your guests mentioned, communication is so important. We have to start communicating with people inside Iran, the government officials and others who are in charge of the healthcare to understand how this thing is developing. And we need to kind of uh, put together the data that is uh, taking place and since uh, uh, Iran, as I mentioned, uh, is at the crossroad, and countries in the Gulf, countries on the east, north, so forth, could be really impacted by these things. So communications in terms of uh, reaching out to public health workers inside Iran, finding out what they need and how the situation is evolving is very important. And uh, just uh, uh, 30 seconds or so, Rachel Hunt, uh, a similar question for your friends in, in China. Uh, uh, I guess at the very least, maybe get a message of support to them, how to, how to, how to reach out to people in China. How to reach out to them? 
Uh, yeah. Um, is there any conduit there? Or I guess I guess people could just uh, send out messages through Facebook or whatever. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Um, it's tricky in China because of the Internet is not accessible in the same way as it is in the U.S. and other countries. Um like with the blocks on the internet. So our campus is a U.S. state school, and we actually have permission to have open internet there, like from the president himself. It mm. was part of the deal of having the university there. Right. So our students have access to Gmail and any like any American website, but most people in China don't without VPNs. Uh, so, um, so tell us again so the, the uh, d- yeah tell us again the name of your school. Yeah. Um, Wenzhou Kane University, and okay. it's. A, State school from New Jersey called Wenzhou. Okay. Or, sorry, called Kane University. All right. Well, um, uh, outside we'll, of Newark. Okay, great. Then yeah. maybe people will so, get a message so there. So Facebook won't work, but yeah. there are still ways. Still ways. Okay, great. Thank you again. Uh, thank you. Thanks. Uh, that's Rachel Hunt, who is uh, teaching in China now remotely. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'll give you 20 seconds the last word to Rob Campbell. You're, I guess, the, the big decision you're doing right now, you've restricted travel from guests in, and you're contemplating restrictions for employees now travel restrictions yeah and and i think that uh i I think it's just a matter of uh um you know taking appropriate precaution um as i said earlier we don't want to overreact or underreact we're evaluating it and and uh and i think the the guidance uh given uh given earlier was you know pay attention to the uh uh pay attention to the, the the guidelines from the government officials and and just act responsibly Okay. Uh, Rob Campbell, President and CEO of Campbell Scientific in Logan, has been with us. Bachman Bakhtiari uh, from the Baskerville Institute in Salt Lake City, and Dr. Andy Pavia, infectious disease specialist in uh, Salt Lake City, along with Rachel Hunt. Uh, thanks to all of you for joining us. Thanks, Tom. Thank and thanks, thanks for listening to Access Utah. A service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University, this is Utah Public Radio. Heard statewide on KUSR, Logan, KUSK, Vernal, KUSL, Richfield, KUST, Moab, KCEU, Price, and KUSUFM, Logan.